0: Welcome to Canucks Talk here on a Canucks game day on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, as always, Canucks insider Thomas Strance, who also covers the team for the athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, Avenue avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Coming to you live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear, and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews, Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. We are also live at Rogers Arena where the uh, Washington Capitals are wrapping up their game day skate ahead of the game tonight between the Vancouver Canucks and those Washington Capitals. Uh, I've got a good, fun tidbit for you, Drance, to start the show. Oh, no. Because you enjoyed me saying that the Canucks were, totally factually, one game out of a playoff spot. Totally factually. Technically correct. Is that that enough for you? The best kind of correct um you forget I used to be a lawyer that's, that's that's how we do it buddy um so how about this one I'm disgusted I just want to let our listeners know a, I'm sitting here like ugh. a win tonight and a Calgary loss the Calgary plays uh Calgary plays the Florida Panthers tonight the Canucks will be technically in a playoff spot if those two things happen tonight to answer two results two results they need to go their way uh, and the Canucks will technically leapfrog a whole bunch of other teams to move into the final wild card spot in the Western Conference playoffs. So we could be talking about a playoff position team tomorrow on the show, Drancer. By point percentage? Not by points percentage. Well, then no. by points. What are we talking about? <laughs> We're talking about points. We're talking about how the standings are listed on NHL.com. Which is by points. And yet, when the
1: NHL ceased the regular season in midstream and the teams had played unequal number of games, did they use what the standings looked like on NHL.com? They did not. Oh, are you anticipating that happening again? Interesting. So the league thinks that point percentage is more telling about where a team's at in the standings in midstream. Listen, man. All I'm, I'm telling you. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm I thought you were you. I thought you were a lawyer. I all thought you had time for you. precedent. All I'm telling you. All I'm telling is you is your you case has just been thrown out. When
0: you go to, thrown the, when out you go to the standings page. When you go to the standings page. Look, you can apologize to your clients. <laughs> don't apologize to me. <laughs> if those two things happen, it will show the Canucks as being in the playoffs. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Okay. You can draw your own inferences or wha- use, whatever you want Don't from make that. me
1: tap the use point percentage for the standings in midstream. Technically, that is the correct way of doing it. Because of the f- precedent set by the NHL in 2020. Period. Done. Anyway, look, the Canucks are on a heater. They are. They are. It's no no use they denying are. it. They're, no one would. Five wins in their last six. And let's be real, the schedule shapes up in an interesting way for them. You know, Pod Colson and Rathbone got sent down yesterday. Yesterday, excuse me. After we'd done the show. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because for the most part, this team is based in Vancouver now for three three weeks. Excuse me. They have three up and backs to San Jose, to Calgary, to Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And other than that, they're at home. And the, and the schedule's not very dense here. There's not a ton of back-to-backs. They'll have time to catch their breath. And their opponents are gettable, right? You've got this Washington Capitals team, Dmitry Orlov unlikely to play tonight. We saw what the Orlov-Jensen pairing did to the Canucks when they played in Washington early mm-hmm. on this season. That's a big loss for this team. That really impacts their ability to get moving vertically in the sort of way that this Canucks team can struggle against. This Capitals team is slow up front. They, they are not very fast. Vancouver will be the faster team tonight for sure. Again, we don't get to say that very often. We will say it tonight. This is a winnable game. Now, are the Capitals still lethal on the power play? Well, not not really, but not by the percentages, but <laughs> they give but you something know, to be concerned about. They give you something to be <laughs> yeah. concerned. They still haven't. They still have an atom bomb. at five on four. They're technically below average on, uh, yeah. on the power
0: play for the season, but. Ovi's going for a record, and uh, you know how yeah. players like to set records in Vancouver. <laughs> I also don't think anybody, uh, any of the penalty killers are going out there like, oh, this is a below average power play. You know, no, maybe, oh, no chance. Oh, that's all right. This is the capitalist <laughs> oh, power play that Alex everyone Ovechkin. has copied. Yes. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, there. it's going to be, it's not an easy game. It's not an easy game tonight, but it's not a unwinnable one by any means. And then you've got the Barkov-Les Panthers. And then you've got you know Phoenix and Montreal and mm-hmm. or sorry Arizona whatever and Montreal San Jose San oh, Jose yeah. again yeah. yeah I mean this is a this is a nice cozy stretch if this team is for real cozy it is
0: it's a cozy it's this co- is, it's
1: cozy weather wrap, outside wrap yourself up in a blanket sit by the fire <laughs> snuggle with your puppy this right here is if this Canucks team is a good team if they are what they've looked like the last six games. This is the stretch where they win at least three or four and cement themselves as being in that playoff chase pack, right? Because right now, sure, technically they're 1.0. There's a bunch of teams that we know are better than them ahead of them, right? Like <laughs> Calgary, St. Louis, Minnesota. Yeah.
0: Edmonton, and Nashville's Nashville's behind them but ahead on points
1: per Well, no, and, and Nashville I'm not even counting because Nashville's not a team that I would say who I – like, Nashville's not a team I would be like, I think they're better than the Canucks. I don't think very much of Nashville. But Calgary I think very highly of despite the fact that they haven't been able to buy a save in the early going. St. Louis – or a goal for that matter. Yeah. Calgary. <laughs> yeah, but that, that part I'm not as confident going to regress. <laughs> sure. <laughs> their, their, sure. Goal, their, their goalies are going to start making saves. The offense, it's a Sutter team. Who knows? St. Louis – I believe in right. Like St. Louis, I think is really good, despite soft underlying numbers. Minnesota, I think Minnesota is one of the best teams in the West, probably a top four or five team. Just like I think Calgary is one of the best teams in the West. Like the teams to watch for are way ahead of Vancouver. You know, the teams yeah, to watch I, for are th- six points clear of Vancouver in Los Angeles, and eight points clear of Vancouver in Seattle, and eight points clear or seven six points clear of Vancouver in Winnipeg. Like those are the teams. Those are the teams that matter here. You know, so the Canucks have a fair bit of ground to make up yet. This is a prime opportunity to do it. Tonight is a prime opportunity to keep rolling. And I like how this matchup shapes up for them. Truly, I, I no word of a lie. I know you tune in here for me to examine the diamond of the latest shiny Canucks result and poke hole, oh, no, not real gold. <laughs> you know, you're all tuning in here to, yeah. to so that that I can chew on the gold coin and, and declare that it's pyrite. But this is a real opportunity This matchup is a favorable one, in my opinion, for the Vancouver Canucks. They're home. The crowd should be into it. There's going to be snow. Everyone's going to be happy to be inside. (laughs) It's going to be an interesting night at Rogers Arena, and the Canucks have a real opportunity to get rolling to begin this homestead.
0: Yeah, Capitals uh, scuffling. I think lost 10 of 14. Uh, They beat the Canucks in October in Washington. Of course, the Canucks blew a 4-2 third period (laughs) lead in that one. Stop me if you've heard that one. Uh, before, But, I mean, we talked about it going back to last season as well. This is typically a team that the Canucks match up pretty well against. And they're going to be going into tonight's game with uh, an identical lineup, at least outside of the crease, as they used in San Jose, as they've been using consistently here. I know Ilya Mikheyev wasn't on the ice for the game day skate. That's because it was an optional. He was the only player that took that option. So it's the same forward group that uh, that we've seen over the last few games, same defense pairings as well. One interesting note after Thatcher Demko gets the win on Sunday in San Jose, Spencer Martin draws in for this one. That will be the third time in four games that Spencer Martin uh, gets the start in net for the Vancouver Canucks transfer. It's an interesting one, right? Super interesting. (laughs) Three
1: of the last four starts are now Martins. He's outperformed Thatcher Demko. I thought Bruce Boudreaux's commentary on the matter was fascinating. Um, You know, I still don't like it. Like, I still think that you got to give a struggling starter, particularly with the track record that Demko has, the respect of giving them some time to bounce out of it. Now he's been pretty poor to this point, and Martin has outperformed him. I understand that, but I- I'd like to see more of a, you know, Boudreau was talking about the plan for it, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll let's hear from him first, and All then right. let's get into it because I thought his commentary was enormously telling.
0: Uh, we don't have to do it right now. We can do yeah, it later. Yeah, the, we're still collecting the audio from yeah, but, uh, from the players and the coaches, but we will play Boudreau but, but back But Boudreau's
1: commentary here. about, you know, sort of working Demko out of this, you know, maybe next time he has a good game, he'll start two in a row. Um, it just doesn't feel like – it feels like there's not a lot of confidence in Demko internally. And, you know, there should be. In my opinion, there should be. I know how he's performed, and I also know how he's performed large sample – I've watched most of his career. He's really good. He's really good at this whole stopping pucks thing. And he's had a run of poor form behind a really leaky defense. Um, Martin's been great. But, you know, I I think this team goes as far as Demko takes them this season. Truly. Like, at the end of the day, this team has two fastballs. Two fastballs. The power play and Thatcher Demko being outrageous. Uh, Elias Pettersson at 5-on-5 is quickly getting there, too. Right now, let's call it like a wipeout slider (laughs) right but you know those are those are this team's two big weapons and you know you can't i don't think achieve the sort of like playoff berth third in the pacific division heights that this team had carved out for it the the their sights sets a sights set on prior to the season without you know making sure that you get demko back to the level that he's traditionally been at you know playing rarely, needing to earn his starts back, just I, I really have concerns about whether or not that helps
0: or whether it snowballs on him further as a result of him ha- having to await uh, an opportunity to find his rhythm. It's really striking. Uh, Demko has only played consecutive games for the Canucks once in the past month, which is really stunning <laughs> when you think about it. And obviously that, that streak will continue tonight. You look at it just the last four games, the only game that Demko has got is the quintessential player backup game, right? The second half of a back-to-back against the weaker of the two teams. And in Boston, the same story.
1: And in Montreal, the same story. So Demko's only starts going back three weeks have been on the second leg of back to back. Well, no,
0: because he started— um, At the L.A. game. He started L.A. and Vegas. So those are the sure. two games that he's started consecutively since the beginning of November. Yeah, and And other than that, it's been second half of back-to-back situations, mostly. And, and I mean, I would not be surprised if, um,
1: you know, there was a fair bit of debate about that L.A. game at the outset, you know, as to who would be the starter there. It feels like, at the end of the day, and Boudreaux's commentary alluded to it, right? Martin's got me points in 14 of 15. Uh, You know, it feels like a trust thing right now. Like, it feels like a trust thing. But that makes sense when we're talking about Jack Rathbone. That makes sense when we're talking about Vasily Podkolzin. That makes sense when we're talking about Niels Hoglander. I still might not like it, but it makes sense for me when you're talking about Thatcher Demko. Th- th- there shouldn't be a trust matter. You know what he is. You, you just got it. A- it should be about what you can do to get him there.
0: It's a little surprising too because he was so Demko was so <laughs> instrumental to the success of the team after Boudreaux took over last year. It's totally. not as if he hasn't seen it. It's not as if you know. Oh, we all know Demko was good, but he's never done it with Bruce Boudreau around. Demko was phenomenal after Boudreau took over in those final 57 games. So Boudreau's had every opportunity uh, to see what Demko can do and to see how he can perform as a as a workhorse goalie, you know, even behind, uh, as you said, a leaky defense like the Canucks have, Drancer. It's, look, I think we're still going to get to a point where Demko reclaims, obviously, the crease, and, you know, he is the clear-cut number one workhorse guy. It is interesting that, you know, Broudreau is uh, is willing to go back to Spencer Martin here. And again, you know, you look at the schedule. We were talking about how Demko's getting a lot of second halves of back-to-backs and all that. Those aren't on the schedule right now. The next time they play a back-to-back, it's not for three weeks. It's uh, Thursday, December 22nd and December 23rd. They play home to Seattle and then away to Edmonton. They don't have another back-to-back until that. And they don't have another one on the schedule after that until well into January. So uh, there is not – it's not like I don't want to say there's a goalie controversy because there's
1: not. Right now there's a clear starter in Vancouver and it's Spencer Martin. You just look at usage over the last month. And it's, that's kind of how it lines up. I mean, it, it, it is basically how it lines up with the exception of one stretch of games where you play Demco in the L.A. game, mm-hmm. and he wins, so that, so he gets one more look against Vegas, has a tough
0: third period, and now it seems like Martin's the guy they're rolling with. Yeah, it's basically been a 50-50 split until the last few games in which Martin will get three or four, and that will kind of push him narrowly ahead uh, over if, the last month or if so. If they win tonight, is there any suspense about who's
1: starting Thursday? I wouldn't think so. No, there's not. I don't think there is. Like, I truly don't think there is. So that's what I'm saying, right? Like, at this point, it's probably going to take a break or a loss. Like, if Martin can hold serve, he's the starter right now. Yeah. That's where we're at. I'm just, no matter what, I get it. I'm not saying you need to sacrifice the competitive spirit of the team. But I don't like it. I don't. I think, the, I think the importance of Thatcher Demko to this organization is paramount and needs to be, you know, massaged in a certain way. I, I just don't see that happening.
0: Lots of text coming in here. 650-650 is the Dunbar. Are you Lumber telling me Canucks line. fans get fired up about, <laughs> about goalies? About goalie start decisions? <laughs> they, my they goodness. Definitely, they definitely do. Some um, things never change, my friend. This one says, A simple reality is that the Canucks dug themselves a deep enough hole that they have no choice but to play each game. Uh, with the players they believe gives them the best chance to win that night. R- right now, Demko is improving with some starts and a decent chunk of practice time. Uh, Martin is playing better in terms of in-game performance. End of story. That's another interesting wrinkle, though, here, is that I think Demko's last two starts have been pretty solid, right? I mean, you, now you could make the case that the one uh, against Vegas, he he really fell off, obviously, in the third period, the one at uh, in Rogers Arena. Uh, at home to Vegas, and that's fair. And then we have somebody else texting in, you know, that Vegas third period sealed Demko's uh, fate, at least for now, because they were really counting on winning that game. But if you go back to the L.A. game, I thought he played pretty well. I thought he played really well through two periods against Vegas, and I thought he had a strong game uh, on Sunday against San Jose as well. So I think there is positive development. You can see a positive trajectory uh, from Thatcher Demko. It's just, you know, as you said, Drancer, right now it is Spencer Martin – uh, that has the trust of Bruce Boudreaux. Davis in Delta says, the truth is, neither goalie has been great, but Spencer has gotten every good bounce. Demko has gotten every bad bounce. That has truly been the difference. Demko will get back in form, and I'm trusting the coaching staff to help him get there. That's from Davis in Delta. And I think that is an interesting uh, point, point about this as well, is that it's Spencer Martin has been good, don't get me wrong. But it's not as if he's been so lights out that, you know, he's he has this dominant, incredible save percentage and incredible uh, statistics to back it up. Again, he's been good. It's more just that Thatcher Demko's overall performance has been so far below his normal standard uh, that Spencer Martin has been able to eclipse it, you know, with doing kind of league average-ish goaltending, um, or a little bit above that, for the Vancouver Canucks. 650-650, again, is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. uh, You continue to get your thoughts in. Lots to get into today. Uh, This is exciting. Later on in the show, we're going to have Jason Priestley on the show. Yeah, North Vancouver's own Jason Priestley, actor, director. Uh, He's the director of a new documentary, Offside, The Harold Ballard Story. So we're going to chat to Jason and the producer of the film, Mike Geddes, a little bit later on in the show. We'll play some Bruce Boudreau audio too. Uh, I did want to uh, get into... Quickly, just as you said, it, it happened yesterday after we went off the air. The Canucks send Jack Rathbone and Vasily Podkolzin down to Abbotsford. Makes sense with the schedule. You you can understand the need to get those guys uh, playing time. Is there anything more to it than that, Drens? Or is it simply a matter of we've got these young players, they're not getting in the lineup right now, we have to find them a way to get, a way to get them time, and this is a situation that we're in that we can do it? Yeah, I mean –
1: Abbotsford's home for a long time. Vancouver's home for a long time. They're a quick drive away. They need to get minutes. You know, I, I, I was excited to see Vasily Podkolzin play in the AHL in the playoffs last year. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a bad thing for him to go down and be by far the best player in that league, which he will be. He will be. Vasily Podkolzin's incredible. I think he's, I, I, look, I think he should be in the lineup now. Truly. I think he's one of this team's 12 best forwards. I don't have any second, like, that doesn't take me a lot of time to say. <laughs> I'm not saying that with a douse of, like, qualification of any kind. Uh, so, you know, I think he's going to go down to the AHL and dominate. I don't think that's bad for him by any means, but I do think they need to get him back in the lineup in the NHL really quickly. There's still subtleties for him to learn. When Pod Colson is up and running as a truly effective, like, as, as a guy who helps you win games, and I think he's going to get there because he's got the work rate, right? because he's got the size, because he's got the skill, mm-hmm. and because he competes right like all of those things are things that Vasily Podkolzin does and I think can do at a high end level. I
0: think he's smart too. I think he's a smart hockey player. I now, he's a smart player, but it takes time. No one it's right. really well, rare that you drive. When I say that, what I mean is that he has the smarts to develop into doing those things, right? It's not a it's not a situation where you're looking at there there are young players who still need to learn the game, but you can see that they have high hockey sense, right? And then there are young players that you can say, "Oh boy, I'm worried about his hockey sense." The Silly Pot Coles, and totally fair to say that he still needs to learn the game, but I don't have questions about his hockey sense or his hockey IQ. I think he's a smart player who's learning how to be successful in the NHL, right? And that also gives me confidence that he's going to figure out how to be uh, a successful player.
1: He's going to be a successful player, and the way he's going to be successful, though, is subtle. It's going to require him, I think, being one of those, you know, Big, assertive wingers who's just a handful on the forecheck, like a handful as an F1, um, you know, really drives quality defensive results. I think eventually he'll kill penalties. Like, I think he's going to be a high-end defensive winger. Mm. I actually think that's going to be his ticket as opposed to the offensive side. I mean, we've seen the shot. We've seen all that stuff. But I think it's his physical tools and and the intelligence that you're talking about that's going to make him special in time. How do you get there without reps at this speed against players like this? You know, that's sort of my concern here. There's a style of veteran coach, right, who can come in and give your group a spark, who the veterans love playing for, but you can go years, and it's like, are any of the young players better than they were when they came in?
0: You know? I, I just get a little nervous that that's where the Canucks could find themselves. Yeah, and it comes back to, I mean, we've talked about it so much, right, the issue of alignment right is the are the coaches incentives aligned with what management wants to see and obviously as much as there might still be a hope to you know make the playoffs and do all those sorts of things and, and kind of salvage the season you have to think that this management group would also prioritize the development of players like Vasily Podkolzin and Jack Rathbone Jack Rathbone who they signed to a two year uh, contract in the summer after he really impressed them right like that's a guy that they made a priority and they seemed to have very high expectations for him and hasn't worked out for him. And it's just another wrinkle to make it. It just, it just makes the Bruce Boudreaux situation and the fact that they didn't move on from him in the summer. It looks like they might move on from him early in this season. Now that has simmered down a little bit, but there are still going to be these kinds of, Awkward situations or slightly maybe off situations because of the fact of how it's all played out and the fact that he's not signed beyond this year and the fact that he's a veteran coach who's going to do things his way. It's 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 probably not ideal that Vasily Colson is going down, but you also understand it from Bruce Boudreaux's perspective, as one of our texters put it, pointed out. Right? He's in. I'm going to do everything I can to win every game. Well, and that's what he's doing. And I'm not betting against Boudreaux doing that. Oh, uh, well, I'm
1: betting against him winning every game. But I mean. Do I am I betting against Bruce Boudreaux ringing the maximum number of points out of this team that's possibly achievable between now and game 82? Nope. Nope. budro's going to do that. He always does. He always does. Right. <laughs> that's one thing I think Canucks fans know about him. That's one thing the hockey world knows about him. Um, that's hard earned respect. I mean, that's what what kinder words can you say about an NHL head coach? than he's going to maximize what this team achieves between now and then. Uh, That said, for an organization as far away from contention as I believe the Canucks to be, you know, uh, the Martin thing, the Rathbone thing, the Colson thing, Hoaglander's iffy usage, although now he looks like he's found perhaps Mm -hmm. a a somewhat, uh, not permanent,
2: but... We'll see uh, how long it lasts. Yeah, hopefully
1: he's at least found a timeshare on the the top (laughs) line. Uh, You know, so long as that continues, that's good. But yeah, I mean, I think it's really vital that this team proceed with the long view in mind here. You know, in everything, in everything, you have to marshal your resources to do it. How does this team get better if they're not more efficient developmentally than everybody else? Right. That was like a hallmark of new management's plan, at least what was sort of enunciated to the market. And to this point in the season, you know, we're seeing regular Klimovich scratches. We're seeing Pod Colson and Rathbone's usage be iffy. Now they're down to the AHL. We're seeing Hoaglander's usage be a little bit odd. We're seeing the club ride Spencer Martin as a starter for a month. You know, I, all of that maybe helps them win a few extra games here. Maybe it helps them with their charge to ninth in the West. Uh, or as you'd say, in the playoff spot. In a playoff spot. But, Facts you Facts know, only. <laughs> What I'm what I'm hoping to see in terms of the organization's holistic view of how you meaningfully level up um, is 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 for them to behave with a wider angle lens. Uh, you know, I I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation.
0: No, and I I don't I would be surprised if management doesn't share that view, right? That they that they want to take a wider angle lens. It's just that's hard to enforce on a coach who is a veteran coach who has an incredible winning record and is on yeah. the last year of his deal. Are, are we? Uh, you, you know how the
1: lame duck coach thing? Mm-hmm. Every time it gets brought up, people are like, it's not a real thing. People always work the last – like, after this last three years in Vancouver, are we ever going to hear that again, or do people understand
0: finally, you think? I don't know. This text comes in, 650-650, uh, when Jim Rutherford starts hinting, hinting he's going to fire the coach, this is what happens. The coach is playing who he thinks gives the team the best chance of winning. Why play Demko uh, if it's going to cost you your job? and. I, I think that text illustrates that people are making the connection, right? And it's especially easy to make the connection when the president of hockey operations is very publicly critical of the coach, and when we hear reports that maybe they, you know, maybe uh, Rick Tockett would be a candidate, maybe this guy. Have they reached out to so and so? When that's happening, I think everyone kind of sees and understands. Boudreaux's coaching decisions through a specific lens, and that lens is job security. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, 650-650. Keep your thoughts coming in to the Dunbar-Lumber text line. We will hear from Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux. Uh, Bruce Boudreaux, lots of interesting things he has to we'll say. And we'll also hear from Bruce Boudreaux. Yes, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then Andre Boudreaux.
1: <laughs> Whatever. Get off, get off my back, Trash. I don't need this. Oh, <laughs> uh, Hey, I, I'll get off your back when you start reading the standings right. Hey that, man. That, that is a promise. Hey,
0: man, look, I, I, I'm not making any <laughs> claims about points percentage or anything like that. All no, clearly, that's on the problem. The, on the NHL.com standings page, <laughs> that's what it will say. That's my only claim. Okay. It's a very limited,
1: focused claim. And and, anyways, and all of our smart listeners will sort by point percentage <laughs> and be like, Jamie,
0: Jamie, <laughs> <laughs> we have to be clear here. Uh, anyways, more Canuck talk on the other side. It's Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650 on a Canucks game day. They are hosting the Washington Capitals, 7 o'clock tonight at Rogers Arena. Of course, full game day coverage here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance here, live from Rogers Arena. Uh, we're being overrun with excellent, excellent texts. B- Boudreaux puns? Well, <laughs> yes, Chet and Burnaby. Chet and Burnaby always bring the heat, he by does, the way. says, do you think Bruce sleeps in the Bruce Boudoir? No, I think he sleeps in a comfortable bed with his wife. <laughs> yes, yes, probably. Uh, no, we had another good one. Uh, so, of course, uh, the Canucks are going to honor the Zedines and Roberto Luongo. For this the week. Hall of Fame on Thursday. Oh, man, I forgot for those Florida- guys are coming back
1: again. When the Florida Panthers. I'm actually sick of those guys.
0: <laughs> we've, we've talked about it on one or two occasions. Uh,
1: what? Them, the Florida Panthers. Oh no. <laughs> no, I'm never sick of that. <laughs> I meant the cityins and the longo. I was just okay. kidding
0: though cuz I've covered them so much the last 2 months. Um this text comes in, with Canucks set to honor Luongo, how fitting that we have a goalie controversy brewing. That's true. <laughs> it's the ultimate tribute. Hey. The ultimate tribute to You know what? And so do the Panthers. Icon. And so do the Panthers. There you go. So there we go. That You know what? That is a good one. And uh, Tyler texts in, point percentage only matters when the season gets shortened due to a global disaster. Even then, they increased it to 24 teams. So if you're going to use points percentage, you have to add eight teams to the playoffs. So based on that logic, Canucks are already a <laughs> playoff team. Has- <laughs> Hashtag <laughs> Team Jamie. That's from wow. Tyler. Okay. So shout
1: out to Tyler for Sh- bringing the heat. Sorry, shout out to Tyler for bringing the outrageous read. I actually have so much time for that silliness. <laughs>
0: yes, I do as well. Yeah, that's great. I do as well. Um all right, lots to get into today on a Canucks game day. Keep the fire text coming in. The hints keep coming for
1: the Canucks in regards to Bo Horvat. Yes. Could you could you drop a tougher first 6 weeks for the Canucks, having decided to extend JT Miller first instead of Bo Horvat, having entered the offseason with the intention of doing the Horvat deal, backing into doing the Miller deal instead, mm-hmm. then you get to where we are today, late November. Mm-hmm. Also, basing the
0: foundation of your team for this year on having three stud centers. <laughs>
1: three stud centers, right. So now we get to this point, and JT Miller's played well. Especially on the power play.
0: Yeah, and I, I do think his uh, his form has looked a lot better at 5-on-5, I would say. On well. the wing? Yeah, on the wing.
1: Okay, so six weeks into the season, it's like, oh man, we're better with JT Miller on the wall. And Bo Horvat is leading the league in scoring. <laughs> Brutal. Meanwhile, the market for centermen just keeps going up. Rope hints signing a mega deal. In Dallas today 8 years 8.3 million dollars This is where the market Is going for Stud First line centerman Now Is Rope Hints A good comparable For Bo Horvat?
0: So This is a fascinating question I've seen a lot of people Dispute that he is a comp He is a comp Now When you say that It does not mean That you're saying They're identical players Or no. that they are Exactly as valuable Ropey Hints Better player than Bo Horvat. I have no problem Saying that I think he's a better play driver. His statistical production over the last three years is better. Sure, Rupe Hintz is a better player for Bo Horvat. That doesn't mean there's no comparison to be made. That doesn't mean they're galaxies apart and the contracts have no relation to one another. It's still a first-line center, not too dissimilar in age to Bo Horvat, only one RFA year covered off here, getting a big-time deal. So, yes, it is going to affect... The market for Bo Horvat services. Whether or not you think one player is better than the other, they don't have to be exactly equivalent players to be comps for each other. That's not, that's not how it works, right? There are no two identical players in the league. Here's another big difference between the two.
1: Rope Hint signed an extension. Bo Horvat's still, in and unless an extension gets done before then, bound at the moment for the open market. And should he hit the open market as a 58% face-off winning 40 goal c- centerman who plays first line minutes mm-hmm. whether you want to call him a first line center or not I, I mean who's been a captain in a Canadian market <laughs> yeah good guy good in the room crushes it on the power play maybe one of the best bumper guys in the league truly truly Bohorvat is set up to earn very much money, a lot of money, and like Bo Horvat's going to smell like the vault shortly, and not just from the um, the advertising dollars that he makes uh, filming with, <laughs> with uh, Connor McDavid and the body break folks <laughs> walking a goat. So here's the so here's the thing about the comparable career numbers, career production. Bo Horvat point six five points per game, Rope Hintz, 0.74. So. There's a distinction there, mm-hmm. right? And not and not a tiny one, by the way. Like I know that sounds like a tenth, you know. You just, it's like, right. oh, that's only a tenth, but prorated over 82 games, it is. It's a material difference, right? Like a point seven four points per game guy is a 60 point score. A point uh, six five points per game guy is a 53 point score. Right? That that's that's the difference between being one of the 32 highest scoring centermen in the league i.e. a top line center by production and not being that being a high-end second line mm-hmm. center so that's a that's a key number to keep in mind here last three years rope hints 0.97 points per game he's really good yeah he's really good bo horvat however 0. 0.86 points per game the last three years again that's not far off now that's the difference between a 65 point center and a and a, and a near 80 point center Um, that puts both guys in categorical top-line center categories, particularly if Horvat's a 40-goal-scoring centerman. I'll tell you this. They're not perfect comps. Dallas has the tax rate advantage. But I guarantee you that like Scar having over-hunted on the Pride Lands, (laughs) Newport Sports is licking their lips today, as they should be. As they should be. This We are in unprecedented territory. Horvat profiles like an unprecedented, unrestricted free agent. Like, truly, we haven't seen anything like this since Chris Drury. That's probably the comp in terms of stud two-way center still young hitting the open market like this. It just doesn't happen. So, yeah, I mean, it's a scary number. It should be a scary number for Canucks management. I guarantee you that it's a number that Bo Horvat's camp –
0: was very excited to see when it came across the NHLPA wire earlier today 650 650 is the Dunbar lumber text line uh, keep your thoughts coming in if you have any about the the hintz hints Bohorvat comparisons uh, anything else going on with the Canucks we will talk about it throughout the course of the show but first let's hear from Canuck's head coach Bruce Boudreaux.
2: no it, it was an optional and he, he took it and and he was the only one but he'll be playing tonight so I'm not worried
0: about him. How impressed have you been with the way that line has played, particularly on the road trip?
2: They were they were really good, and um, you know hopefully it can continue. The more they play together, the better the continuity of the line gets, and and the better they feel. Uh, so I mean, uh, we would like them to be able to play at that level all the time.
3: manko was joking that the pass he got from Miller in overtime that anybody could score because it was such a great pass. But what about the finish he showed there, Bruce? The fact that he's getting into a zone now. Where- He's much quicker with his releases.
2: The well, yeah, I mean, it's when he shoots. Like, I mean, that's the biggest thing that he has to, to learn to continue to get better. And uh, uh, when there's a guy in front of him, he always wants to make the deke and everything else. But, uh, you know, like if you see him and just watch him when he's shooting the puck and there's nobody in front of him, his release is as good as anybody's. And, um, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's fun to watch because it's very accurate.
1: Bruce, over the course of this six-game stretch with five wins, your power plays outscored the opposition by six, the Pedersen line by seven. What sort of a weapon are they for you right now? Uh, the,
2: the what? The power play or the, the, the Pedersen line? line. The,
0: outscored your power play, which has also been very good.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that's they've been really good. I mean, but you need that if you want to win. If you don't, if you don't get that and you don't get the the you know the three and four lines going all the time you're going to find yourself being a very mediocre team and it's it's simple when teams are going good it's because everybody on the team is playing well and that line is it felt it on that trip and and hopefully they continue to get better
1: Niels um, working with Miller and Bo mm-hmm. what have you liked about that combination since you found
2: it well he brings extra speed you know and he's tenacious and uh he's starting to to learn how to work both ends of the rink a little bit, which has always been a little bit of his problem. And uh, so, I mean, if he continues to do that, I think points and goals will, you know, will follow. And uh, uh, he, he's had a little bit of a rough time getting them right now, but it's it's the process of doing the right things, and eventually they'll work out.
1: We often think of a puck battle winner who plays with sort of two higher-end finishers mm-hmm. as being like a, a Chris Kunitz type, not necessarily a, a five foot nine guy like Nils, but is that sort of what you're looking for in terms of just maximizing how much, how many touches?
2: Well, if you're looking for the perfect tonight, line, you know, you're yeah, looking yeah. for that. I mean, uh, so, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's something you can find, but he's, he's tenacious on the puck and he's a fast skater. So, I mean, those things should work out for him, you know, I mean, uh, or hopefully anyway.
4: So it looks like
3: Spencer's going to start tonight and you've been alternating him the last how tough is that when you've got a guy like Thatcher, probably needs to work his game back into where he wants. And big picture is
0: the long-term starter for this organization.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, but the whole the whole idea is is not to all of a sudden he plays a couple good games, and then give him eight in a row. You know, like I mean, uh, Spencer's been really good, and but you want to bring bring it up a little slower for Thatcher, and then you know the next time he might start two in a row, and then you know, and then it'll it'll Gradually get back to where he's the he's the guy if he continues to play the way he's he's been playing, but you can't deny that Spencer's been great every time we've touched wood that uh, we've put him out there i mean uh, i don 't know what his his overall record is, but I think it's like one loss in fourteen or fifteen games, so uh you can't just sit there and say because Denver's our number one guy and our future that we're gonna, you know, forget about uh, forget about the guy that's gotten us into a pretty good position right now. Are
3: you
0: seeing enough signs, Bruce, sure right now to believe that this hockey team's turning around now and entering a great, uh, great
2: Well, I mean, you know, I look at the the NHL as a whole, and it's been so topsy turvy, where teams are winning six, losing six. Uh, uh, we'd like to be consistently good, and I thought the way we played in Vegas and. Uh, and in Colorado, if we can continue to play like that, we're going to get more our sh- more shares of the wins than losses. And uh, they've been playing together, and everything is is going well. But it's one of those things that you you got to get ready and be ready to do that every night. Or if the league's too good; somebody else will come in and, and take your take your job or take your position uh, in the standings.
3: You guys sent Bud Colson and Rathbone down yesterday. Mm-hmm. Looking at Abbotsford's schedule it makes sense, maybe to get them some games. Is that your mindset and do you think they need
2: that young guys need to play i mean that's the biggest thing i mean we love both of those guys but i mean right now when we're playing fairly well and you know i mean it's no good for a a pods or uh or rathbone to to sit in the stands we'd much prefer them to play i mean i was you know being a minor league coach for a lot of years understood especially in washington when um, we had really good young players they had to play and they developed to the point where they became the the capitals for 15 years and uh that's what we're looking at we're you know i mean pods is going to be an nhl player for a long time and he's going to be back and so's so is jack but i mean if, w- if we've got enough guys and they're not playing let's get them some ice time and and get their confidence back up uh P- Pods' confidence was probably at a little bit of a low low ebb there, and so I mean I think going down there and playing all situations I think will really help him.
0: Alex is one goal away from tying
4: Wayne oh, for
0: no. the most road goals. What what goes into you know performing on the road versus? Performing?
2: Well, I, yeah with a guy like Alex, it makes no difference. I mean, he loves the the fans and everything, but he comes to play every night, so I mean um, scoring, uh, scoring goals is what he does, and it's just he uh, uh, could play on the moon and Alex would give it his best and he'd, and he 'd and he'd do well so I mean um, I, it's, it's not surprising that he's, that this is another record or milestone that he's going to achieve. I just hope he does it in Seattle. <laughs> do
0: you think he catches Gretzky? Do you think- He's one of the greatest, but you think he's the greatest pure scorer we've seen? Well, life?
2: I think, as you know, I'm a real big Alex fan, and uh, uh, and I think he's going to do it because he's just strong-willed enough to stay around to do it. And, I mean, he's going to get 30-plus again this year. So, I mean, and uh, he just, if he can stay healthy, and luckily he's, you know, been healthy for most of his career, uh, I would think he would do it.
4: How
2: does that happen? What is, what is it what that makes him do, be able to do that? Because like the guy says they know it's coming. It's, he's a special special athlete. I mean um, you know that if you make a mistake he's going to put it in. You go to baseball you know, you know if you make a mistake on judge it's going out of the p- uh, park. Uh, you know if uh, it, in football if you made a mistake uh, Brady's going to hit you for a touchdown and it's the same here. Like Everybody for 17 years knows where Alex is on the power play knows what's going to happen and he's still you can and we all do everything we can to try to stop him but i mean he still finds a way to get it in he's so smart offensively that people don't realize how smart he is
1: bruce you've over the course of your two seasons here had a sort of bottom six line whether it was the lamico mott highmore group or now with amon and joshua uh where you tend to put them into pretty tough matchups and sort of create a different environment for your, your classic top six, how do you view the role and what you're looking for from the online at the moment, And but in comparison to how you used Lamica last season? Well, in,
2: in, a, in a perfect world, I mean, first of all, I have confidence in all of those guys, and they've been playing great. There's no doubt. Um, you'd like to be able to start them in your own D zone so you don't have to uh, waste a... Bo Horvat or Petey in your D zone, and and if, if they could ever get to the point where they can play, you know, at least a third of the time or two-thirds of the time against the other team's top line, that frees your offensive lines up against the other team's probably third or fourth line, which would make it great. But, I mean, I've always been a big believer uh, ever since I got in this league that uh, if you have four good lines – and you have a great chance of of winning the majority of your games. And I still believe that. And you look back at all the cup winners in the last 15 years that their fourth line has been a real big part of the team and very few times has it just been a one-line team or a two-line team that wins the cup.
0: That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux speaking to the media ahead of tonight's game against Alex Ovechkin and the Washington Capitals, of course, Bruce Boudreau, formerly the coach of Ovechkin uh, and the Capitals, talked a little bit about that, also about the fourth line there at the end. Probably the most interesting commentary, though, and you alluded to it in the first segment, Drance, is on the, the goaltending decision, the decision to start Spencer Martin tonight, and the uh, a little bit of insight into the plan and just kind of overall how he's viewing Thatcher Demko right now, which was, you know, the, the phrase that stood out to me was, Know, we're trying to gradually get him back to being the guy right not not right away but gradually so that is still the plan as bruce brujo sees it but they're just going to take their time getting there is kind of how he was explaining it uh today
1: yeah i mean it makes i don't know i don't know like i just don't know i doesn't seem doesn't pass the sniff test to me you know a plan to limit Demko's ice time by incorporating more Martin starts makes sense to me. But a plan to ride Martin so long as he wins, which is also something Bruce alluded to, mm-hmm. um, you know, to me feels like playing with fire, um, you know, considering the importance of Demko to what this team needs to accomplish in the years ahead.
0: that just That's my view of it. Yeah, and I think what you heard from Boudreau there was a little bit of trying to thread the needle, where he is at least acknowledging that, look, Demko's the guy. He's going to be the guy. He's important for the future. He's, he's telling you all of those things. I guess the question then comes, is the current strategy the best way to protect all of those things, right, to protect the fact that Thatcher Demko is the goalie of the future? Look, it's right now it's been kind of a month of back and forth of Martin will have started slightly more games. I think that how this next month proceeds is going to tell us an awful lot. And obviously, it's going to depend on how Martin continues to perform. It's going to pretend, depend on how Thatcher Demko performs when he gets his chances. But I think this, going into January, I think we'll have a much better handle on at least how Bruce Boudreaux sees this situation. Because as we've talked about, you know, there's not a lot of obvious spots where you have to play your less favored goalie. No. There, there's on. really, there's really not. This there's is... a lot of two days off between games. Not a lot of travel. Like, if you really like one of your goalies and you have a lot more confidence in them, this is the time where you can give them a run. If if you're inclined to do that, which which it doesn't feel like they are. You know, no. I, I feel like this is a
1: very much a trust thing, uh, a rebuilding of trust thing for Demko, and that just troubles me. I think that I think that Demko should have earned enough trust to be used as a starter and if your backup's outplaying him backup can have his their workload ramp up but that's not what we're seeing we're seeing a, a supplanting and and
0: i don't love that i really don't love that uh the other thing that stood out to me near the beginning of boudreau's availability there was just speaking a little bit about niels hoglander and you know uh, saying that he brings some extra speed. He's he's tenacious on the forecheck to the Horvat line. And we heard a little bit of praise uh, from Boudreau for Hoaglander's development in the defensive zone, right? He said he's starting to work both ends of the rink a little bit. That's always been one of his issues. And I also thought it was interesting because we've so often heard Boudreau emphasize the need for Hoaglander to produce if he wants to stay in the lineup, right? Like the goals and points have to be there. And I thought it was a little bit of a different tone today where it was – he's doing the right things, and the points will follow. I thought that was an interesting shift in how he talked about Niels Hoaglander, right? A a willingness to say, okay, the process is good. I'm not as worried the points will get there if he keeps playing like this. You're right, a welcome one, and one that suggests that Maybe if it's not, you know, you said what? It might be a timeshare rather than a permanent home. But at least that there's a future with Hoaglander uh, in the immediate term here with, uh, with Horvat and Miller when you're hearing those sorts of things from the head coach. It's a really interesting
1: spot for Niels Hoaglander considering his ability to win puck battles. Um, you know, he's a pocket press now for that line. And he doesn't profile as the type of player who often gets that shot. He doesn't profile as the Michael Bunting or mm-hmm. the Chris Kunitz or the, you know, Zach Hyman, Alex Burrows, whatever guy you want to use. Thomas Holmstrom. Um, the digger type player who can complement skilled guys just because of his height just because of his sort of um, skill profile fast hands but look he's got a lot of the attributes that they need Boudreau mentioned the speed the battle winning tenacious on the puck um, you know him and him and JT Miller alternating F1s sounds good like that sounds interesting to me um, so I think it can work and I think he can be a pocket press for that line uh, which I really like uh, in my mind's eye that makes a ton of sense The stability that he's brought to a second Canucks forward line has meaningfully given this team or could meaningfully give this team should it continue, you know, the sort of gear that could leave them as a neutral five on five
0: team, which they need to be if they're going to win enough consistently enough to be a playoff team. All right. Jason Priestley and Mike Getty is the director and producer of Offside, the Harold Ballard story. They're going to join us on the phone line in the next segment. First, quickly, I want to tell you about the City, City News 1130 Great Big Give Holiday Breakfast. It's coming up this Friday, December 2nd from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. You can kick off the holiday season with a loving spoonful and City News 1130 for a delicious breakfast by donation, a minimum $5 donation. Again, this Friday at the Fountainhead Pub pub anytime between 6am to 10am everyone who attends you'll have a chance to win a fabulous door prize city news 1130 will be on location you can drop by you can make your holiday donation for a possible chance to get on air with city news 1130 all donations will help support a loving spoonful programs and the new kitchen you can get details on the event page at citynews.ca. again that's coming up december 2nd at the fountainhead Hub, so make sure you check it out Jason Priestley and Mike Getty's next on the show it's Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650 Jamie Dodd Thomas Trance live at Rogers Arena Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment your Kubota all-star team Avenue AvenueMachinery.ca DouglasLakeEquipment.com Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. We are very, very excited to be joined on the phone uh, by our next two guests, uh, the director and the producer of Offside, the Harold Ballard story. It's premiering at the Whistler Film Festival on December 3rd, and it's going to be streaming on the festival's website from December 16th to January 2nd, so you have a chance to check it out. I strongly recommend it uh, if you are a hockey fan, and our guests are uh, North Vancouver's own, an actor, a director of the director of the film, Jason Priestley, and producer Mike Geddes. Mike, Jason, thanks very much for joining us today. How are you? Excellent. i well, guys. You guys. How are you guys? we're doing very well we're doing very well and uh we really appreciate the time you know we both had a chance to uh to watch a screener uh, of the movie last night i really enjoyed it it was fascinating so much interesting uh you know we all heard this story of how of harold ballard of a legends but there's there's so much kind of beyond the headlines that's uh, been dug up for this film and you know jason i'll start with you what drew you to tell this story specifically about harold ballard and his time with the maple Leafs?
4: Well, I mean, it was, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, like you say, I grew up in North Vancouver and I, you know, grew up a Canucks fan and I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 53 years old. So I sort of, uh, you know, I, I sort of, I, I sort of missed the heyday of Harold Ballard by, by, by a couple of decades. Um, so for me, it was, it was, it was a real education to go back and do the research and, and work with uh, and, and work with all the guys to, to put this film together and, and to have the opportunity to talk to talk to uh, Daryl Sittler and, and Landy McDonald and Tiger Williams and, and talk to all the journalists who who were the, the guys who were around and, and, and were part of, part of that era of, of hockey that um, that happened when I was a really uh, small kid um, uh, was a real education for me and to, and to really sort of try to uh, delve into to who this guy was and the, and the impact that he had on on hockey in Canada and specifically hockey in Toronto and the impact that's still being felt today. Um, it was, it was really fascinating to try to delve into who this, who this guy was and why he did the things that he did.
0: Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's such a fascinating story. And Mike, from your perspective, what, uh, what drew you to get involved with the project?
3: Well, as, as a producer, you know, the first thing you have to look at has anybody really told this story in this manner and in this depth? And the answer was surprisingly no. It's it's uh, it's surprising given somebody that kind of dominated our headlines in the sports pages, most certainly throughout the 70s and 80s, hasn't had a full length feature documentary done on him. is a little astounding. So that immediately drew me into this project. And then, you know, everybody. It's really a story about a rise and a fall, and Undeniably, that's a story everybody, you know, takes interest in, whether it's sports or not. And, you know, sports writers, uh, Ballard had an interesting relationship with the sports writers community and and, and how he played them. And that, to me, aside from the well-publicized, you know, record of the Toronto Maple Leafs during Ballard's reign, which was, you know, 10 losing seasons through the 80s to start. That relationship, I think Ballard was, was very, very uh, Trumpian in his approach to the media. Mm-hmm. He, he knew how to get headlines. And that, uh, you know, in the 70s in Toronto, there weren't any other Canadians who were like that. And so that, that was really exciting for me. And obviously, you know, the CDC jumped on board. They're our uh, great partner on this. And, you know, it's going to be a fun ride to tell this story.
1: Mike, I'm curious to follow up on the not-a-lot-of-other-Canadians-like-that commentary, because, of course, we all know, right? We, we all know the national reputation, polite. <laughs> um, yeah. But Ballard was, you're right, a showman of a different sort. What is it in particular about his abrasive style that captivated
3: you? Well, Jason and I both learned a, a ton of tidbits About Ballard, and and the first thing you have to appreciate is here's a guy who, who, who won the prize and got to the pinnacle of what he wanted to get when he was 68 years old, and you know that's a time when other Canadians were not looking to rise; they were looking to settle in and start on their knitting. I mean, that was retirement age. So the way he, nobody was going to change him, and here he was in over his head. And, I, and, I, and he owed a lot of money. I mean, he, he was a rich guy and, and a privileged upbringing. But, uh, you know, the banks own the team. And mm. that's a lot of pressure on a guy. Uh, and that, that, was a, that was, you know, maybe what drove him. He, he didn't really care about anything else but making money. And he knew in one of the more powerful offices in the country, in a prized institution named the Toronto Maple Leafs, that he could, he could you know, get away with almost anything. And we see that he didn't, but you just can't operate like that today. And so, you know, that's an era where, you know, the uh, the privileged elite really ran unchecked. Mm.
1: Uh, Jason, I'm curious to ask you, over the course of directing this documentary, was there any through lines? Because toward the end of the film, you really do draw a through line from the struggles of the 80s to the continued struggles of the Maple Leafs to achieve much of anything in the playoffs was there anything that surprised you over the course of compiling this material doing the interviews um, that you learned about the role that ownership can have on a team's performance uh, while putting this project together
4: Uh, well well it it certainly can in the case of a guy like Ballard the way that he ran that team I mean there was there was a certain sense of of unease and, and and a lot of the players talked about it, you know, from guys like Gary Lehman who talked very directly about it, being a young player on that team and the, and the, and the, the feeling of instability he had as a young player and how he felt like he didn't never had the opportunity to really mature on that team and grow and learn the ways he should have. Um, and even guys like Rick vibe who was a little bit older when he came to that team and had, you know, argued, you know, scored 50 goals three years in a row on that team. And, um, uh, I mean, think about how great he would have been if, if he would have been on a uh, on a winning team and, and had the kind of support that he should have had. You know, and even he talked about the instability and, and the and and the lack of leadership on that team because because Ballard created a uh, uh, you know a, 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 such a chaotic place to, that he was forced to play in. Um, you know, so certainly uh, in, in, you know working for a guy like Ballard, they they all talked about how how unsettling it was and how it was was so detrimental to not only to the team, but to them as individuals. And I found that, I found that incredibly uh, informative, especially now, you know, uh, you know, all, all the teams are, you know, it's all, it's all very corporate now, like sort of the era of, of, you know, family zoning teams or individual zoning teams has sort of, you know, by and large gone by the wayside and, Mm. Um, you know, I think that I think that you know that 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 style of ownership had a huge impact on those guys back then.
1: Yeah, you brought up Rick Vave, uh, former former Vancouver Canuck, of course, uh, traded for Tiger Williams back in the day, um, and his commentary yeah. in particular about his sense that ownership didn't care about winning a cup at all; they just cared yeah. about yeah. making money. That was a standout for me. Uh, what was it like interviewing him and? You know, you clearly gave that quote the prominence that it, you know, earned, deserved in the in the documentary. But did it feel like an underlying summary of sort of the instability story you were trying to tell?
4: Yeah, very, very much so. And, you know, I I really appreciated Rick's uh, honesty. And obviously he still felt, you know, incredibly passionate about about Mm -hmm. that. And I think that he he was he was very um, he was still very emotional. About his time that he played on the Leafs, I think that he felt very. He got you know he got he got short shrift by the by the Leafs when he played there, and, and he, he, you know he obviously took it very personally because how else was he supposed to take it? You know, um, he was a you know he was he was a guy that should have that should have been treated much better by that organization at that time, and I think that he he still carries uh, he still he still carries a big uh, a big uh, a big weight uh, because of that.
0: We're in conversation with Jason Priestley and Mike Geddes, the director and producer of Offside, the Harold Ballard story premiering at the Whistler Film Festival on December 3rd. And, you know, Jason, one of the, the interesting things about watching the documentary mm-hmm. is we're, we're also used to, uh, as hockey fans on the West Coast here, you know, using the Leafs as a punching bag, and they haven't won the Stanley Cup in so long, and they can't get out of the first round. But one of the things that drives home is, you know, this was a, an extremely successful operation in the years immediately before Harold Ballard took over. And, you know, of course, they're also immensely popular and still so popular to this day. What struck you or what did you learn about the effect that Harold Ballard had on the relationship between the team and its fans while he was in charge.
4: Well that you know that that's something that that, that no matter what he did and no matter what he said and no matter what outrageous things he came up with, it the, the relationship with the fans never changed. You know, Toronto has the great. The Toronto Maple Leafs have the greatest fans and the, the most devoted fans I, I have ever seen, and and they continue to fill the Scotiabank Center every home game. And they, you know, and every year they they you know they believe and they believe this is the year. They are um they are they are remarkable fans, and uh and and, and they were back then, and they continue to be this day.
0: And, Mike, you know, you've talked about how this is kind of an illustration of uh, somebody with a lot of power being unchecked and being able to do basically whatever he wants. Does the passion of the fans almost facilitate that? Because as Jason was just saying, they're still still packing the building, right? They're still buying those tickets. It it seems like no matter what Harold Ballard did, uh, it it wasn't going to put the business side of things in jeopardy. Did that almost uh, facilitate some of the things that he was uh, able to do and get away with while he was running the Leafs?
3: Oh, oh! I, I really uh, believe that most certainly. I mean, when bums are in seats, um, that takes the pressure off. Uh, you know, it would have been interesting to see if uh, he wasn't able to fill the place every and sell out every game. Um, he might have uh, been a little more uh, operationally, anyways, between the lines. But uh, he was, he was an outlier. You know, other owners had tons of power in the league, but they did not have the numbers and certainly, you know, the, the value of the franchise itself, the Leafs were first among equals and and still are. Um, So, yeah, it, for, for somebody that it really felt like he had something to prove that he was a big wheel in a, in a big city full of old money. I mean, he, he came by his money a a different way. And uh, I think he struggled with that. And, 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 I mean, everybody knows he was not a hockey man. And when he inserted himself, uh, there was nobody there to challenge him. And let's face it, the media didn't challenge him either. Um, they needed him. And uh, we saw what happened when they challenged him in the documentary, which was, you know, a brilliant chapter. And uh, we spent a lot of time on in the documentary.
1: Um, for, for both of you, so just because we can't see each other, I'll, I'll ask Jason to answer it and then Mike. Uh, what are you hoping that contemporary hockey fans take from – this look into the relatively recent past of the sport?
4: Well, I, I, you know, I, I hope for, for younger hockey fans who don't know uh, anything about Ballard, I hope that it, um, that it's, uh, you know, that it, that it's an educational um, and also uh, entertaining about a, a, you know, about a, about a much larger than life character that, um that they should know about. Um, uh, and for, uh, and for, you know, for hockey fans that are a little bit older and that remember Ballard, I hope that it, I hope that it's, uh, uh, that it gives them some uh, insight into, into hopefully into why he was the way he was and why he did some of the things that he did. And, um, and we'll we'll, we'll hopefully uh, enlighten them somewhat as to as to um, a, l- a little more as to as to who he was.
3: Yeah, I, I think I think for hockey fans, um, conveniently or not, when the when the Leafs uh, get knocked out of the playoffs, we start to hear things about the Ballard curse, and I'm sure there's a whole generation that, you know what is that? Uh, the Ballard curse. Okay, I'm, I'm with that, but I really don't understand it. So maybe, maybe they'll understand it a little better now, whether or not it's a thing as an individual preference or not. But, you know, Jason and I both tend to believe there's, there is a ballad curse. So that's, that's kind of, I think the documentary can really fill in some blanks for a, a whole generation of people. And as Jason just said, for, for uh, I'm a touch older than Jason, and for the, our generation and, and the generation before us, it's a callback to an era. Um, I mean, the number of Ballard stories that have come my way just in uh, talking to people. And uh, it seems that everybody has a Ballard anecdote and uh, some of them are funny. Some of them are unbelievably inappropriate. And (laughs) some of them are just, you know, gobsmackingly, you know, why did he do that? And uh, he was a character and, and and there's never going to be anybody like him in sports again because they just couldn't run their office that way. They couldn't exist nowadays, as we all know. So, love him or hate him, he was a character, undeniably, and I think that's what they're going to take from this.
1: Jason, there's a through line throughout the documentary from Con Smythe resigning and selling his shares over Cassius Clay fighting at Maple Leaf Gardens mm-hmm. to. Uh, you know, the commentary from Ballard uh, about Rosie D'Amano and and, um, Blatchford uh, sort of being trailblazers as women journalists covering the sport and in locker rooms. Um, What echoes do you see from the gender and racial politics navigated by some of the principal characters in this documentary? Like, what echoes do you see resonating from that today in a sport like hockey where uh, obviously this is on the tip of the tongue uh, over the course of the past couple of years.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, they, there's no denying that, that Ballard, you know, was, was, was racist and sexist and, uh, you know, homophobic, xenophobic, you name it. He, he was, he was all of the above, but he was also, you know, he was, you know, he was born in 1903, you know, and he was, he was, uh, you know, leopard doesn't change his spots. Right. There was, mm. he was, he was going to be who he was. And, um, and, and he was just of a different time, you know, and he, there was no, I, you know, I, I, feel like that, that, that radio interview with Barbara Froome that we, yep. that we pulled up was, was incredibly um, instructive of, of who he really was at his core. You know, he was, he was just a, you know, an, an incredibly sexist, rude, uh, you know dismissive guy you know and he didn't any he, any he, uh, he, he didn't care in a lot of ways he just was super bombastic and uh, did or didn't said a lot of things and and had very little regard for uh, other people uh, at a lot of times um and and i and i think that you know and i think that, like michael said you know like a guy like that just can't exist today. Like, you know, through, if you, you look at him through a 2022 20, lens. Um, he would, he would get canceled so fast that it would make his head spin. A
0: couple more minutes here with Jason Priestley and Mike Gettys, the director and producer of offside, the Harold Ballard story. And, you know, Jason, I wanted to ask you because one of the very impressive and and enjoyable things about the film is it's a real who's who of the Canadian hockey world that you that you got to talk about Harold Ballard and their experience. Right. And, you know, we've mentioned the players like Lanny McDonald and and Daryl Sittler. It's also reporters. It's 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 everyone from around. Uh, the hockey world at the time, who knew him? I'm curious. With such a character like Harold Ballard, right? What kind of reactions did you typically get when you reached out to people and said, "Hey, we'd like to sit down and talk to you uh, about Harold Ballard a little bit"?
4: Well, it was. It was. Uh, I, I think. I, I think Mike can actually uh, uh, speak to that Go a little ahead. bit better than I was. He, he yeah, did most I of made... the first uh, contact with people.
3: You know, it was pretty consistent among the players. Um, Because let's face it, it's an old, it's an old broken record that people have been extremely critical of Harold Ballard for the last 30 years, 30 plus years. So they didn't really have an interest in continuing that broken record. If they wanted to have a, you know, uh, an up close and personal conversation about their personal experience with Harold, then they were, they were in, and that's kind of what they're allowed to do. And I mean, Tiger Williams loved Harold Ballard. Um. Harold Ballard, you know, was, was uh, uh, whoever the person was, they made him what, what they wanted Harold Ballard to be. And I think, you know, it's just it, – at the end of the day, it's, it's just a bit of a sad story, but that's where it all ends. They all felt some level of disappointment, the players. Um, but the media, for instance, they, they did their job, and they're still to the core – uh, journalists and their tune was we'll just call it the way we see it but we now we can reflect a little better on it because it wasn't happening in the now it's it's 30 years later after his death so everybody had a point of view and they just wanted to make sure that this wasn't a complete nutter hatchet job on Harold <laughs> Ballard and I think I think we struck a balance given who Harold Ballard was I mean the scale is never going to be 50-50 um, but I think we did a pretty pretty good job at, at a fair representation of Harold.
1: Yeah, and, and I noticed the sit down with uh, our, our former Sportsnet colleague Stephen Brunt happened in the uh, private wine room at Gotham. Or sorry, Barbarians. Excuse me. So I hope you guys yes. got a good meal out of that as well.
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs> we know We didn't have enough time to eat, and it was oh. frankly it was it was COVID. The restaurant was closed. Oh. Um, again, that that was a challenge in this. It, this was. This was done when lockdowns were happening and we had strict protocols and knowing I, you know, they have one of the better stakes in the city. We never, we never did get
4: one. Did we Jason? No, we didn't unfortunately, but we, we all like that place a lot. Yes.
3: Yeah. (laughs)
1: You'll, you'll have to go back there. I had my wedding reception in that room. So I was like, ah, that looks like a lot of my photos. Um, I'm pretty (laughs) sure they're, I'm pretty sure they're at Barbarians. What a great spot. Good good eye. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
4: yeah,
0: Jason, Jason and Mike, we really, really appreciate the time. Again, the film is uh, Offside, the Harold Ballard story. It's premiering at the Whistler Film Festival on December 3rd, and then it will be streaming on the festival's website from December 16th to January 2nd. Yeah, we really
1: enjoyed it, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us, and enjoy Whistler and the debut. Hopefully your drive up won't be uh, as snow-covered as Vancouver is at the moment. Ah, oh,
4: fantastic. Okay. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Thanks, gentlemen. Mark.
0: Our pleasure. Thanks for the time. Uh, that is Jason Priestley, of course, North Vancouver actor, director, the director of the film offside the Harold Ballard story, and producer Mike gettys as well. Uh, Rager texted in uh, during the course of that interview. Wait, are you talking like the 90210 Jason Priestley? Yes, yes we are. Yeah, yes, we are. The 90210 so. Jason Priestley. Uh, and Tambir texted in uh, Canuck's talk has turned into Leaf's talk. Is it Drancer's birthday? <laughs>
1: I think there are echoes. Well, here's the thing.
0: No, here's the thing, though. First and foremost, you can be the biggest Leafs hater in the world. That makes it a perfect movie for you because it's all about the misery and downfall of the franchise. And the persistence the of it. It's
1: perfect movie. And the persistence of it. But also, you know, there are echoes, I think, that are well, well worth sort of mining uh, between, you know— I just think the relationship between team performance and ownership is under discussed. And I thought that this documentary drawing a through line for 30 years of Maple Leafs misery from Harold Ballard to today, uh, you know, I thought it was extremely relevant. Plus, of course, Jason Priestley is a Canucks fan. He's debuting a hockey movie up at the Whistler Film Festival in a week or two. I thought it was a super relevant topic.
0: Uh, It's also, I mean, just if you're a hockey fan. and I also just wanted to have Jason Priestley on the show. Yeah, exactly. Come on. Sue me come on of course we're gonna have jason priestley <laughs> tan, on this course, show
1: hey of course it's Tanbeer objecting back to having bad takes again huh buds <laughs> five, five five and one over their last six and Tanbeer's got bad takes again shocking
0: um i think for a lot of hockey fans you probably you know you're very familiar with the name harold ballard and you just kind of think like oh old kooky owner of the Leafs. it is pretty wild to really revisit and dig into so much of ac- what actually happened during his reign like he literally went to prison. He spent time in jail when he was the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs. So you try to imagine I know. something like that happening today. And it's just oh, well,
1: completely unthinkable. Honestly, they brought up the Rob Ford analogy, or sorry, they brought up the Donald Trump analogy. But I kept thinking, this is Rob Ford. Mm, this guy was Rob Ford, Ford rob Ford. was Rob Ford. That's an that's interesting one. That's what it one. felt like to me. Yeah,
0: that's an interesting one. Yeah, uh, I think Ballard lived in Etobicoke as well. So there,
1: <laughs> there, 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 you go. And his brother is the premier. (laughs) Yes.
0: Uh, Anyways, again, the movie is (laughs) Offside, uh, Offside: the Harold Ballard story. Uh, We're very pleased to chat with Jason Priestley and Mike Geddes. You'll be able to stream it. If you're in Whistler, you can go see it December 3rd at the Whistler Film Festival. You'll be able to stream it on the festival's website from December 16th to January 2nd. Final segment of the show, more Canucks talk. On the way, get your text in, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, more Canucks stock, It is the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Stock here on Sportsnet 650. It is a Canucks game day. They will host... Alexander Ovechkin in the Washington Capitals, uh, 7 o'clock tonight at Rogers Arena. You'll be able to hear it all here, right here on Sportsnet 650, of course. pregame show starts at 6. Batch and Randeep have the call at 7, and then your postgame coverage with Sat and Bick after the game. 650-650 um, is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. What are you chuckling about? No, there, nothing. Randeep?
1: Sorry. I just got a press release saying that the Blue Jackets have assigned defenseman Bill Sweezy to AHL's Cleveland Monsters, and I was like, Wow, that is a guy. <laughs> I just like I saw the name I was like Sweezy, huh? That's a guy I have no take on. Fire <laughs> I was gonna say.
0: Everyone's gotta rush and get their take off on oh,
1: what this means. <laughs> what does this mean for Bill Sweezy? I legit have no take on this player. This so you're like,
0: saying you don't want to do uh
1: No, I'm always how, I'm always shocked when there's a player I don't have to take on. which
0: teams are good, which players are good, and how good are they? <laughs> you're not gonna feature Bill Sweezy no, on that? I have no idea.
1: He's like you know, like, I have, I have detailed takes about Noah Gregor of the San Jose Sharks, who I thought played really well, by the way, on Sunday. But I have no take on this guy, so I just, like, laughed. I was just like, oh, man, Bill Sweezy, huh?
0: Yeah, that's a name. Uh, all right. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I have to do a read
1: here. Segment four is off to a good start. Yes, yeah, it's off pay, to a great bills, start. We're
0: bills, all, start. We're on the rails. You collect yourself while I do this read. Bill Sweezy. <laughs> check, check whatever parlay you have going on. <laughs> I don't have any parlays. Somewhere. And then we'll get back to it. Ah. Uh, I want to tell you about this. Sportsnet 650 has partnered with Match Eatery and Public House for Sportsnet 650 Sunday at Cascades Casino in Delta. You can join Bick, Randeep, and the Sportsnet 650 squad on Sunday, December 4th. That's this Sunday from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. for all of your marquee matchups. Match Eatery and Public House offers the social traditions of a neighborhood pub with the high energy of a sports bar. Stop by for a chance to win a smart speaker. You can grab some Sportsnet 650 swag. You can talk sports with Bick and Randeep. Plus, we'll have a pair of Canucks tickets to give away and a pair of tickets to the Seahawks game on December 11th to give away. Match Eatery and Public House located at the new Cascades Casino next to the Massey Tunnel. Again, that is this Sunday, December 4th, 1 p.m., to 5 p.m. Uh, you can get 650 or you can get your text in as well 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And I want to double back um quickly or maybe not quickly we'll see how the show how the rest of the show goes, but to the Bo Horvat conversation because we talked a little bit uh in the second segment before we heard from Bruce Boudreaux about the idea of using the Rupe Hints extension as a comparable for Bo Horvat, and you know, my point was they don't have to be perfectly identical players for it to still have relevance to how the Bo Horvat situation is going to play out. The other thing I wanted to mention was uh, uh, Elliot Friedman, Sportsnet's NHL Insider, part of Thirty Two Thoughts. He was on with Rick Dollywall and Don Taylor on Donnie and Dolly on Check TV today. Uh, they asked him about it, and he says. Hints absolutely a comparable for Horvat. And he also says, in terms of the Canucks signing Horvat, I do not think it is over. That is from Elliot Friedman. No,
1: how could it ever be over? This is the Vancouver Canucks. The Vancouver Canucks signed JT Miller only for Horvat to explode out the gate. And now the organization, I'm sure, is thinking, oh, boy, we need to also keep, keep this guy. That's the classic. That's the classic Canucks way always reactive right like that's the problem you know because it's not just Horvat it's Horvat it's Bear it's Kuzmenko it's Hoaglander right on and on down the list there's so many guys to sign and and a finite number of finite amount of cap space with which to do it um you know at some point I really do need to like completely flesh out my estimate for how much actual cap space they have to spend next year you know the the Jason Dickinson deal for example has been carved roundly in this market, including by me. But one thing that it did do is clear 2.75, which is going to matter with all of the expiring talent that they have. You know, you sort of look through next year's commitments. It looks like they're already committed to about 69 million. 69 million to 15 players. That's the that's the surface area estimate, which would be 14 million in, in projected cap space if the cap only goes up 1 million. Could go up to about 18. If mm-hmm. the cap goes up more than that. So, you know, that's tight. That's tight in a world where hints is even a remote comparable for Bohorbat. Right? That's really tight in a world where Andre Kuzmenko scores thirty and has sixty points. Oh, and he's on pace to do ten more than that goals wise and twenty more points wise. Right? I mean that that's it. That's you might need fourteen million just to do those two deals. I mean, realistically, probably yeah. not. Well, probably not. You can probably get it done for cheaper than that, but not a lot cheaper than that.
0: And then, you know... And then you start talking about, as you said, Niels Hoglander. you know, Ethan Bear. who if you're if you're all of a sudden changing your plan because you can't stomach losing Bo Horvat and Andre Kuzmenko and you need to kind of try to make this team as competitive as possible... Presumably, you got to bring back Ethan Bear as well because he's been a big part of helping this defense look a little bit better. Like he's he's bringing very important qualities to the table on the blue line. You can't afford to let him go. You well, can't afford to move him for a cheaper asset necessarily. All of a sudden,
1: and you know, the I mean, the Horvat thing to me is like this team doesn't get better without Bo Horvath. There will there will be years of work to try and replace him, years of work trying to replace a center that good in my opinion but you know you look through all of the things that he's got going for him right and and it really does drive compensation like a lot of what horvat does well drives compensation in this league right Mm. you know top line goal scoring top line time on ice check goal scoring check plays pk plays matchups check right wins a ton of draws check But at some point, you have to ask yourself, does a 30-year-old Beau Horvat in 2025, when you've also got a 34-year-old Oliver ekman Larson earning 7.26, and you've also got a 32-year-old JT Miller earning 8, does it help you win? Does it help you win in two years? It... by the time that this defense could realistically be reconstructed, does that deal help you win?
0: Well, and how no, much just, of your yes or no? Uh, no, it doesn't. Okay. And how much of your ability also are you taking away to improve the defense if you sign that deal, right? Because you're not getting assets back by trading them, and or you're cap and space. you're tying you're tying up a ton of cap space, right? Right. So, so
1: it, I, I mean, at some point, don't you at some point don't you have to make a hard decision ever? You know, like if this organization can't. Let anybody go, and and we clearly know that they can't. How do you ever clear the decks? How do you ever get the asset capital? How do you ever find value? How do you ever do the work, the disciplined, hard, unsexy work, to mine and graft depth and value into under you know, the club? Like I just, to me, it just doesn't make sense having committed to Miller to also commit to Horvat. You know, I, I, I'm I'm sure it's not over because this organization just struggles so mightily to ever let go of anyone good. but yeah. the function like the function of the cap requires it, particularly when you're not a contending team. It, uh, you know it's one thing it's one thing if you're going for it if you're gonna win a cup in, Hor- in the first three years of Horvat's next deal,
0: by all means. well that's and, and I've seen people having the debate, right on the, the Rupe Hintz versus Bo Horvat thing and saying well Hintz is a number one center and Bo Horvat isn't now you can look at it and the the ice time that he plays you say well he's a number one center right and we'll see what he's going to do uh, where his goal scoring ends up this year but you know if he <laughs> if he's a 40, yeah, he's goal, a 40 scorer, goal
1: scoring second line center sure yeah, yeah, yeah that right, makes
0: sense I think so I think for, I think what
1: a 40 a, goal scoring second line center who plays the second most ice time 5 on 5 on the team but I
0: think what <laughs> I think what a lot of those people are actually trying to get at is okay sure if you look at it from around the league yes Bo Horvat qualifies as that number one center does that mean the Canucks should pay him for the next seven or eight years as a number one center, right? Is it is it the right contract, the right fit to pay him as such for this team? And I think that part of it I understand, that no, it probably isn't. Right? It probably isn't. As you said, if they were right in their cup window, then yeah, absolutely. You lock Bo Horvat up to that deal. That's how I felt about the JT Miller situation as well. But it's just not going to be the right contract For this team It's probably going to be A decent contract For some team That ends up uh, doing it It's going to have Some back end risk to it As as all free agent contracts do But if you're in that window And you can add Bo Horvat Like ace goal scorer Ace faceoff guy Yeah you do it It's it's just You have to be cautious It's it's, it's the right player Wrong time For this team
1: But it's always The right player At the wrong time Like that's always The situation you get into When you Sort of mess up The fundamentals Of managing a window you know, we've got texts coming in like, well, Einstein, you don't trade away the top goal scorer in the league if that's where he ends up at the end of the year. Get rid of, you know, the the plenty of dead weight. There's a couple players mentioned. Um, you know, I'm sure that's what the organization would like to do. But presumably there might be costs attached to it. You know, like forget getting rid of X contract you want to move with a return coming back. You might have to pay to get off of some of those deals as the Canucks had to do when they traded a second for Jason Dickinson. Right, like one of the reasons I didn't like that deal was that I didn't see the value in giving up a draft pick that might help the team in 3-4 years or help them faster than that because it's an extra trade chip to play. Um, you know, just in order to clear up 2.75 million this year and next, like I didn't think that was worthwhile considering my high degree of skepticism that this team wins a cup. Wins more, than a, wins more than a round in the playoffs over the next two years. You know, that would be a remarkable achievement considering the true talent level of this group, in my view. If you, if you win a round of the playoffs in the next two years, that's phenomenal. That's probably, like, the 95th percentile outcome for this team. So why are you trading valuable futures for the benefit of that? It's the same logic, though, in extending Horvat. Like, at some point at some point it's just too much money tied up in too few players who are too old particularly given whatever raise Elias Petterson's about to get you know i mean you look at Rope hints as um, not a comparable for Horvat you want to say that fine rope hints is a comparable for elias petterson petterson's better oh yeah so you know and that and that's coming down the pike coming down fast that could be a really big deal if hor if Pedersen's a 95.40 goal-scoring guy with elite two-way impact like my goodness Uh, you know this this is the big picture stuff that worries me and no one wants to talk about it when the Canucks have won five of their last six but it's still there simmering in the background right it can't be ignored our our opinion can't change on this team entirely over two weeks it's just that's not a that's not practical
0: lots of good thoughts coming in here Danny and Brookswood says I love Horvat that said instead of buying high with him Uh, Why don't we sell high? Why can't we ever do that? That's from Danny in Brookswood. Dan in Fort St. John says, When have the Canucks ever made a hard decision? I've been waiting for something bold from this group, but it looks like it isn't to be. And at that point about why do they never sell high from Danny in Brookswood, we had the text come in yesterday during the show uh, along the lines of, uh, you know, it's really striking how little of this team is missing Tanner Pearson right now in the recent run of success. Who's of course out of the lineup with an injury, and it, it did get me thinking about that decision to extend Tanner Pearson rather than trade him when he was going to be uh, a pending unrestricted free agent. And you know, that was the moment to sell high. That it could not have been a clearer example of he has real value right now. For all, like again, I've defended Tanner Pearson's performance a lot on the show, on this, show, no, on this Tanner team. Tanner Pearson
1: doesn't deserve some of the flack he gets from Canucks fans, but that doesn't make the decision the organization made at the time the right one, you know? Yeah. Like, you can defend Tanner Pearson, the player, and, and I've done the same, while still recognizing that it was lunacy. That was the
0: definition of a sell-high moment. The
1: definition it of a, a sell-high massive moment. was a missed opportunity. I mean, there were players that went late first, early second, you know, like like good defensemen, who are going to be impact players in the league next year that you could have in exchange for a guy who, like, where does Tanner Pearson slot into this? Tanner Pearson was available tomorrow. Where would he slot into the lineup? Would he?
0: I don't know if he would.
1: I don't, I don't know if he would. would. You know, like, maybe for Hoaglander, but,
0: but
4: uh, that I, makes I, I that line
0: pretty slow. I wouldn't take him out for, for Nils Hoaglander, that's for sure. For Garland or Besser? I think, I think he's waiting for a loss to get into the lineup. Okay, so, right? that, and and there's two years remaining.
1: That's only, I mean, that deal was only signed, what, 18 months ago? It's Life moves fast. Life moves fast in the league. You have to be prepared to replace good players. You have to be. It, it's it's terrible. It's, it's not fun. The hard cap can be tough on fans for this reason. But you look at the best teams in hockey, wh- what are they willing to do? They're willing to let guys walk. You look at the Edmonton Oilers, what do they do? They pay Jack Campbell and Zach Hyman. Look at the Toronto Maple Leafs. They let those guys walk. I know the Edmonton Oilers have won two playoff series to Toronto's <laughs> one, to Toronto's or to Toronto zero. Yeah, but like, who would, who, which team would you rather be right now? The team with a lot of money committed to a group that so Jack Campbell got one more point than this team, than this Canucks team. Like you've watched this Canucks season, would you be satisfied if this was the amount of points that this team had while employing Connor McDavid?
0: And Leon Dreisato. <laughs> and
1: Le Andres, two of the top five players in the world. My goodness, right? I mean, you have to be prepared to do that. You have to be prepared to make tough decisions. This organization consistently hasn't been. And, it, you know, at some point it's going to hold them back. Bo Horvat is, is too good to let walk without launching into a longer-term build of some kind. Period, right? Like, that's just fair to say. You lose Bo Horvat. If you're not rebuilding, you can see it from there. And yet if you keep Pohorbat, I mean, how does this team get better ever? Right? It's 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 a really unfortunate spot to be in, but that is where they are, and that's where they're going to be regardless of if they win the next four. Right? That's go- that, that's just where this team is positioned because of years
0: of short-term thinking. And we've got lots of texts coming in, and uh, I've just lost one here, but it basically said, "It says, this upcoming offseason, buy out OEL, trade Myers once his bonus is paid, trade Pearson. You know, we see people say, okay, trade Garland, trade Besser, like do what you have to do basically – to uh, to free up the space to sign Bo Horvat, maybe to free up the space to sign Andre Kuzmenko as I, well. I, by the way, I don't think that's
1: outside the realm of what we might expect to see. It's just that if you get to a point where everyone knows, like, oh, boy, they've, they've signed $14 million worth of um, <laughs> of, of Horvat and Kuzmenko. 14 million, $13 million. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's—$12 uh, 12000000 whatever. Right? So that means they have $5 million in cap space to flesh out a defensive group that only has Myers signed on the right side— Plus Hughes and Oliver Ekman Larson. Well, that's the
0: thing. And you can go, okay, look, I know Oliver Ekman Larson has not been good this year, but he's still playing significant minutes for you. And it's turned around now with, Tyler, with uh, Ethan Bear on his pairing. Tyler Myers still plays minutes for you. Connor Garland and Brock Besser are still good players, right? It's not as if they're doing nothing no, but out there. You, I know there's frustration with Brock Besser. If
1: everyone knows you need to clear space. Good luck getting even Bjorkstrand type money for them.
0: Well, so that's the thing, right? If it's if it's a situation where you say, Okay, we gotta do everything we can to bring back Bo Horvat, to bring back Andy Kosmenko, and to continue to be competitive next year, right? We still we're not gonna take that proverbial step back. We're gonna keep going for it next season. If you have to strip so much else from the team, Okay, yeah, you can sign Beau and Ander Kuzmenko, but then you, you've given yourself a monumental task of filling in all those blank spaces that all of a sudden exist because you had to shed all that salary. And as you said, when you're in that tight spot, it's really, really difficult to get value for your players, plus you might even have to pay to get off of them, some of them, right? If you're buying out OEL, you're reducing your cap space for the foreseeable future, for a long time, if you do it after this year. So there's a lot of... It's not as simple as, you know, just wave the magic uh, cap space wand and open up the space to get these guys signed, we we know... magic
1: cap space wand would be fantastic. That would be great. That would be be really good. We should go on a quest for that.
0: (laughs) We know that this management group has been trying to open up cap space. It's difficult. It's hard to do. Now, I think with Myers and Pearson, you can see a a future where it becomes easier to do with those players, but you're still probably... it's not It's not as simple as we're just going to trade all these players so we can sign our good players because you're still left with a lot of problems, even in that scenario where it plays out. Well, you're still left, too, with very few prospects, right?
1: And a ton of expensive deals signed to guys who are, you know, late 20s, right? And no cost certainty with, with Elias Pettersson, right? The cost certainty thing has always been my big bugaboo, right? Mm. Has always been... You know, this is why the Canucks aren't the Florida Panthers, right? The, the Panthers team that I saw struggle and miss the playoffs three straight years while I worked there, only to become an elite team, not the year after I left, just want to note that, but two years after I left <laughs> with that same core group, right? One thing that they had was runway because all those guys signed $5 million deals that lasted forever. $7 million in Eckblad's case. But... You know that was a different set of dynamics. They had cost certainty to lean on in tweaking the group around them. So even when they made mistakes that were like four years long or, or eight years long in Sergei Borovsky, seven years long in Sergei Borovsky's case, that's still an intractable issue for that franchise. But, you know, Strawman was only four years, so you're able to send him out. Uh, the Matheson mistake, that was a big one, but they were able to trade it for Hornfist, who had far less term on his deal. Like, they were able to get out, tweak that group, uh, uh, tweak that supporting cast around a core group that was high end, like Vancouver's is, by the way, but had cost certainty built in, right? What this team's sort of struggled with is they've been on this conveyor belt. Like Brock Besser got more expensive this past off season, Bo Horvat and Kuzmenko, if you want to count him a core piece now, which by the way, I don't don't know that I disagree with, um, you know, those guys get way more expensive, right? I mean, their their combined salary cap hit right now is like six and a half. It's at least gonna double. Right, it's at least going to double to keep them, and then Pederson, and then you get to the big one. Like that's so tough, and this team's failed, frankly, to get better around those guys as they've gotten more expensive. Which, by the way, isn't even an indictment on the organization. Like it's impossible it's to get really better. It's really hard to
0: do that when you're constantly getting more expensive like that. Like, like, like you know, because it's
1: not even just like I mentioned those guys, but really go back to 1920. Besser hit. You had the Besser Bridge hit. Next season, you had Pedersen and. And Hughes off their ELCs. Actually, that's not right. Because Pedersen in 2021. So the next season, they they had all the expiring UFAs leave, right? Because they couldn't afford to re up them Mm -hmm. cap wise. Or at least they decided to do other stuff. Then you get to Pedersen and Hughes the next year. Then you get to. um, (laughs) Excuse me. Then you get to Miller and Horvat following this season, plus Kuzmenko, right? I mean, it's just like it's such a hard thing to manage when the conveyor belt of contracts is coming at you this quickly and there's no built-in cost certainty, which is sort of the issue with the fact that they bridged Pedersen and Besser. They didn't build that window in, which has sort of served to shorten in my opinion, shorten or maybe even entirely negate this club's window to take that big all in shot with the, with the high end group that we see, you know, just, ventilating teams on pp1 hopefully we get to see that tonight hopefully we at least get a fun season because you know I look at this and think there's a real chance whether you extend Horvat or not whether you extend Kuzmenko or not that this is the best team we will see around Hughes and Pedersen in their prime so hopefully this run continues because if we don't even get to have fun this year then we're really in for a painful run and that just
0: sucks even I don't want to see that Nobody – we talked about it yesterday. It's a lot more fun when we can kind of, with as few qualifications as possible, come in and talk about how awesome Elias Pettersson is playing. Yeah. That's fun. Uh, Elias Pettersson dragging this team to a playoff spot? That would be really cool to watch. that would be fun. It would be, That'd be, fun. That'd be fun. really fun to watch. And it would be fun to cover, you
1: know? I, I mean, locker room today was uh, – was uh, everyone was buoyant. Buoyant. Positively buoyant at Rogers Arena. <laughs> Hopefully that continues tonight. Positively giddy. Why not? Seriously, I had – I had as good a set of conversations as I've had in a long time. It was um, easy work, and, and that'll serve the readers well at The Athletic and also our listeners too. We always appreciate you guys listening. We hope you enjoy the game tonight.
0: All right, <laughs> I'm trying to sign off. I, don't <laughs> I was like, me. I've never, I've never heard Grant thank the listeners before, but that's nice. Um, we, I am very appreciative. <laughs> like, did somebody just body snatch you or something? <laughs> no, we always, of course, appreciate it. Uh, it is Canucks game day. We're done from here at Rogers Arena. They'll take on the Capitals tonight at seven o'clock. It's Alex Ovechkin. Uh, versus the Vancouver Canucks. So make sure you tune in. Pre-game coverage starts at 6 here on the station. Batch and Deep have the call at 7. Your post-game coverage is with Sat and Bick. And, of course, we will be back tomorrow uh, to break it all down for you. Dimitri Filipovich, he is the host of the Hockey PDO cast, and that show is coming up next right here on Sportsnet 650.